The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a description from a book published in 1724 called A General History of the Pirates. That's pirates, spelled with a Y. Our author is Charles Johnson, and he's describing a real-life pirate named Edward Teach, also known as Blackbeard. Quote, This beard was black, which he suffered to grow of an extravagant length. As to breadth, it came up to his eyes. He was accustomed to twist it with ribbons in small tails after the manner of our Ramillies wigs and turn them about his ears. In time of action, he wore a sling over his shoulders with three brace of pistols hanging in holsters like bandoliers and stuck lighted matches under his hat, which, appearing on each side of his face, his eyes naturally looking fierce and wild, made him altogether such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful. End quote. Pirates have long captured our literary imagination, and the clichés have piled on top of one another, the parrots on the shoulders, the X's marking the spot, the islands full of treasure, the hooks for hands, and pegs for legs. And we've developed a relationship with pirates, as which we've talked about before on the History of Literature podcast. They're compelling as heroes and villains, anti-heroes. One might say they live outside the law, but also according to a code. Sometimes, sometimes they're admirable, attractive, seductive, but they can also play the part of an unseen danger, like sharks that sneak up on you in still waters, emerging from the ocean to destroy you. Or, they can be the dictators on the ship. The paradox there that in a band of outlaws, okay, with their devotion to freedom, maybe they left shore because of freedom, but there on the ship, discipline must be fierce. The law of the lawless belongs to the capo. We have rich examples in literature and in real life too. Long John Silver and Blackbeard and Captain Hook and all the men who travel on these ships. It's a man's world as these ships so often were, but there were women on those ships too, sometimes in disguise as men, sometimes rising through the ranks, sometimes finding adventures of their own, navigating the dangerous waters of piracy for themselves. We have on our show today an expert on pirates, Catherine Howe, editor of the Penguin Book of Pirates, who has now written a novel about one such young woman, Hannah Missouri. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here, etc. So, we have a busy show today, all about pirates, and an exciting new novel, which is also about pirates, so let's get straight to cheesecake. First, we have an appetizer, our old friend Emily Dickinson. We'll have another poem from her today. Gee, I wonder if it will be about pirates. My guess is probably not. Probably it will be either the Bible or death or bees. Maybe all three of those. The Dickinson trifecta. We're reading our way through Helen Vendler's selection of the best Dickinson poems, and we are up to number 256. And scanning it, 
Here on the page before me, I see, well, there are no bees, but there are birds and flowers. So there we go. And seasons as well. I'll try the listener's suggestion of reading the poem, then doing our analysis, then reading the poem again. The spelling bee format. Okay, 17 lines. This is number 256. The robin's my criterion for tune, because I grow where robins do. But were I cuckoo-born, I'd swear by him. The ode familiar rules the noon. The buttercups my whim for bloom, because we're orchard-sprung. But were I Britain-born, I'd daisies spurn, none but the nut, October fit, because through dropping it, the seasons flit. I'm taught, without the snow's tableau, winter were lie to me. Because I see New Englandly, the queen discerns like me provincially. Okay, what's this one about? The robin's my criterion for tune. I measure music by the robin sound, the poet is saying, because of where I grew up. That's the point she's making here at the outset. We are defined by the things we have near us. We are regional, provincial to some extent. The landscape, the food, the fauna and flora, okay? What you have around you is how you measure yourself. So for Dickinson, it's robins and buttercups and orchards and daisies. And she says, if I were British, I'd have different things. I see the world New Englandly, which is a great adverb. Even Hemingway, who hated adverbs, I think would appreciate that one. Makes me wonder if I see things Wisconsinly. Well, sometimes I do. Americanly, I'm sure as well. So for Emily Dickinson, her world is not cuckoos. It's the four seasons. It's snow in the winter. It's the falling nut that tells her, acorn, I'm guessing, that tells her that it's October and the seasons are passing. It's the daisies in the spring that tell her the same. And we all do this, says Emily. Even the Queen of England herself is going to see the world provincially. When the Queen is sick, she'll want beans on toast or scones with clotted cream or whatever the comfort food is there in the palace. She won't want the comfort food of Wisconsin, which is maybe a broughten brow. <laughs> she doesn't see the world Wisconsinly. Of course, as Helen Vendler points out in her commentary, a person who is aware that they see the world provincially has left the provincial mindset behind. That's the secret to empathy, isn't it? Recognizing your own psychological underpinnings and prejudices for what they are. That it's because might, the world might appear that way to you, might not appear that way to others who grew up in other places, in other circumstances. Because we don't need just to limit this just to geography, right? There's also a time limit as well. I met a man once who, when he was, someone would say, where are you from? And this guy would answer, I'm from the 60s. Well, that's true as well, I guess. I suppose I'm from the 80s. That decade that kind of formed me. Music, pop culture, fashion, the Cold War. It's a hard thing to shake those years when you're coming of age. So I don't think we need to spend too much more time on this one. I think that point is clear. 
but I'll read it again just to close things out. The robin's my criterion for tune because I grow where robins do. But were I cuckoo born, I'd swear by him. The ode familiar rules the noon. The buttercups my whim for bloom because we're orchard sprung. But were I Britain born, I'd daisies spurn. None but the nut October fit, because through dropping it the seasons flit, I'm taught. Without the snow's tableau, winter were lie to me, because I see New Englandly. The queen discerns like me, provincially. That's Emily Dickinson, poem number 256. And we have our expert in pirates, Catherine Howe, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Catherine Howe, a New York Times bestselling author whose latest work, A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, it's written by herself, tells the story of a young woman's unbelievable adventure as one of the most terrifying sea rovers of all time. Catherine Howe, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So what is your relationship with pirates? Is this something that goes back to childhood? <laughs> That's funny. I don't think I remember when I started thinking about pirates or being interested in pirates. Isn't everyone a little bit obsessed with pirates on some level, one way or the other? I think so. It's the the feeling that they are living outside the law a little bit. It kind of reminds me of gangsters. For sure. What, and it's very, very similar in the sense that they also kind of live by a code. You know, you can have good guys sure. and bad guys even among the pirates. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, but I think I think I started thinking about pirates actually because I'm a sailor. It's my only hobby, oh, right. my one and only thing that I do for fun. And so inevitably, like most people who enjoy sailing, I am both equally obsessed with the Master and Commander novels and also 
yeah. basically with pirates. And as a woman in sailing, you know, there are statistically not as many of us. And so I have a special affection for the few historical examples of women who've gone out on the account. And so I've wanted to write a pirate novel about a woman for a very long time. Right. And you edited the Penguin Book of Pirates. I did. That a little bit. Are they are they historical accounts or fictional depictions or both? Or what's in the Penguin Book of Pirates? Well, the Penguin Book of Pirates came about, it's an edited volume of primary sources, uh, which I have done for Penguin Classics. And it came about because years ago, back in 2014, when I was writing fiction mostly about witches, I was approached about doing an edited primary source reader about witchcraft hmm. by Penguin Classics. And so I, I produced the Penguin Book of Witches, which is kind of like a, basically, if you're interested in learning about historical facts about witches and you want to read primary sources, but you don't really know where to start, the Penguin Book of Witches was essentially me saying, here are some really cool sources you should read, and I will give you some essays and annotations to explain why you're reading what you're reading. And so when I started writing or planning and doing the research for a true account, I was really steeping myself in primary sources about piracy and about the golden age of piracy and the things that we think we know about pirates but don't really understand. And so I proposed doing the Penguin Book of Pirates in a similar kind of vein. And it goes from the 1500s up until the 19th century and includes some pirates that people have heard of, like Blackbeard, for example, but a lot of examples of piracy that people maybe haven't heard of. And in an appendix, it includes selections from two of the biggest sources of what I call the pirate imaginary, the chapter in Treasure Island called What I Heard in the Apple Barrel, which mm-hmm. is when Jim Hawkins learns that Long John Silver is not just a ship cook, and the chapter in Peter and Wendy, the J.M. Barry novel that was based on the play of Peter Pan, in which we learn about Captain Hook and his origin and where he came from. Mm. And so I was interested in looking at those two. Uh, you know, Peter Pan is an early 20th century and Treasure Island is a late 19th century representation, but they're both imagining pirates from the golden age. And so they're really this moment when pirates go from being something historical and terrifying to something that is kind of denatured and rendered safe and for children. And I wanted to look at how that happened. Right. And we owe a lot of what we associate with pirates to those books, I guess. I'm I'm thinking of The Parrot on the Shoulder and X Marks the Spot sure. and all kinds oh, yeah. of uh, yeah. the, the hook itself and all kinds of things mm-hmm. like that. So what did you find in the historical accounts that differed from these fictional accounts and all of the pop culture uh, nods to them that we've had since then? Well, one thing that I think is interesting is that both Hook and Long John Silver, their bodies are mutilated. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's actually not that unusual from a historic standpoint. In fact, in a list of articles to which pirates might sign their name, they would draw it up. It was kind of like the Articles of War, but it was an article, a list of articles for their own self-determination. There was actually a proviso made for how much someone would be paid if they were mutilated and lost a limb in the course of, of the battle. And so I was interested that, that they had that in common, but in each case, for Long John Silver and for Captain Hook, I think they're, it's sort of this ableist stereotype. I think that their outward mutilation is supposed to represent their 
the the moral rot at the center of their soul. And so one thing that I think we we don't really understand about pirates, the way that that we all kind of enjoy them today. In fact, we just had a birthday party for my son and his friends were all, it was pirate themed and everyone was going around with the eye patches and the little foam (laughs) swords and we had a great time. But I think one thing that's missed is the violence and economic risk and also the intersection between the pirate desire for radical freedom and self-determination and the dependence on radical unfreedom in that the golden age of piracy, which is like the late 17th and into the 18th century, is totally bound up with the transatlantic slave trade. You can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Mm -hmm. Right. And it also seems like the pirate ships, I'm guessing they were like a, a almost like joining the military, right? There's a there's a hierarchy on them. You might sign up to be a pirate yeah. because of the freedom or the independence, but then you're not free and independent unless you're the captain uh, on the <laughs> ship, right? Well, and not even, and sometimes not even then, because the captain was usually by popular acclaim, and if someone wasn't doing a sufficiently good job as a captain, they could be they could be removed by popular acclaim. Oftentimes, boats or ships went to piracy as a result of a mutiny. So it's not like, you know, it's not like you would wake up one morning, unless you were Steedy Bonnet, who people might know from watching Our Flag Means Death. He was that rare 18th century pirate who had a lot of money because he was a slaveholder. And he decided he would rather go out pirating. And so he kitted out a ship and hired a bunch of guys. And he didn't even know anything about seafaring. It's kind of hilarious if you read the historical accounts of Steedy Bonnet. But he's the exception. I mean, for the most part, piracy during the Golden Age was the result of mutiny in the face of what they called hard usage. So it'd be more likely a case of men, you know, often subject to impressment, you know, thrown into a ship and taken away from everything that they knew, and then seizing control of the ship because of frustration or terror or other reasons. And so most Golden Age pirates were very short in their career and very much out with nothing to lose. So do you view them as villains or heroes, or do you see them as workers, essentially? <laughs> I think the, the good guys and bad guys is an overly simplistic you know, division. I, mm-hmm. I'm trained as a historian, and so I tend to look at ordinary people who are caught up in extraordinary circumstances. And so thinking about piracy, you can't really think about it independent of class and class structures and the kinds of rather extreme labor demands that were placed on people in the maritime world during this period, Um, although extreme demands were placed on any worker during the early modern period. So certainly maritime workers were not alone in that regard. But I find them intriguing because not unlike Women who are caught up in witchcraft, which is what if, one of the things I've written about in many different contexts for several different novels and for the Penguin Book of Witches. You know, they were ordinary women who were caught up in these extraordinary circumstances. And they're one of the rare instances where we see the perspective of an ordinary person, because I feel like the archive tends to privilege, you know, the stories of people who had wealth and power and who were literate and so forth. And piracy is actually, I think, very similar, except most of those stories are of ordinary men who are caught up in extraordinary circumstances. So I regard pirates with a degree of interest, maybe a certain degree of detachment. I don't think that heroism or villainy is actually a useful metric when talking about historical phenomena most of the time. 
Okay, so that leads us into the novel now that we're talking about today. Who was Hannah Missouri? Well, the character in A True Account, and I must say, I really love having overly long and elaborate titles. And the title, A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, is very much a nod to 18th century titles and the kinds of publications that were that were popular in the 18th century tended to have these very long, yeah. elaborate mm-hmm. titles with long lists. So I'm grateful that my publisher let me get away with having such a long title. <laughs> um, in, this, in this story, Hannah Missouri is a youngish girl. We never actually learn exactly how old she is, but she's meant to be in her late teens. They're about probably around 17. And she is a working person in Boston in 1726, which is kind of the last moment of what we have now come to term the golden age of piracy. She's been bound out to service in Ship Tavern, which was a real place in Boston at this time. And it was already almost 100 years old. So even though that's very long in the past, Boston already had a relatively long past um, in that time period. She's been bound out to service in a tavern and through a set of circumstances, she attends the public trial and hanging of a guy named William Fly. And this was a real person. Mm. William Fly led a, a mutiny uh, because of hard usage on a merchant ship. They renamed the ship the Fame's Revenge. They went pirating off of Cape Hatteras in the Carolinas. And then they they captured a fisherman and they were going to make him essentially be their pilot so that they could go pick up fresh water at Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off of Massachusetts. But because sailing a ship and navigating are two actually really different skills, they were really dependent on this captured fisherman to get them where they needed to go. And instead, the fisherman led them back to Boston, knowing that once they were off the shore of Boston, they would be captured and the fishermen would be saved and the pirates would be tried and most likely put to death. Mm. And and that's what happened. They were captured very quickly. They were publicly tried in a trial presided over by Cotton Mather, who was the same guy who presided over the Salem Witch Trials 30 years before. And they were publicly hanged. And then William Fly's body was which means that his body was hung in chains and left to rot on a rock called Nix's Mate, which is one of the Boston Harbor Islands. And this was done as a warning, essentially, to other working mariners not to engage in mutiny or to engage in piracy. It was sort of a state-sanctioned terror in order to, to try to keep working people in line. And so my character, Hannah, witnesses this act and through some circumstances I don't too much want to reveal, she winds up having to flee for her life and disguises herself as a boy and ends up on a ship that she thinks is a fruit packet bound for the Azores. But quickly she realizes that she is in over her head and has thrown her lot in with a group of pirates that were associated with William Fly. Right. And Hannah Missouri was was a real life character as well. Yes, there was a real Hannah Missouri. I, I, I borrowed her name. Oh, okay. She was not a real person in the way that I've just described her, but there was a real Hannah Missouri. She was from Beverly, Massachusetts, and she was the wife of a clipper ship captain in the middle part of the 19th century. And she it was not all that unusual, but she shipped out with her husband on his voyage, and they were taking a load of, I think it was locomotives, around Cape Horn 
which is simply mind-boggling to me, and then dropping them off in California because this was the time of around the gold rush and the development of California. And after they dropped off their shipment in California, they traveled across the Pacific to pick up a load of Chinese laborers who they were then going to bring back to California. And while they were traversing the Pacific on the way back with the load of Chinese laborers, Hannah's husband died and they started to run out of fresh water. And so the laborers and the other sailors on the ship mutinied and Hannah held them off with a pistol until she could be safely redeemed by the Navy off the coast of San Francisco. And then she ended up suing for her percentage of her husband's ownership of the ship. And when she was back in Beverly, she bought her own house with that money. And then she died at the very beginning of the 20th century. And I, when I first learned about her, I loved imagining like 1907, this elderly woman walking mm. down the street. And you wouldn't even think that this person had been around the horn, which is astonishing, and yeah. then had also put down a mutiny by herself with just a pistol. And I thought that that was so awesome and not a very widely known story. And so I wanted to use her name as kind of an homage to her in writing my version of Hannah Missouri. And was her full name Hannah Augusta Missouri Howe? It was. That was her married name. Yes. She was, a, I know, she was a distant great aunt. And I figured I figured out her story because, I mean, obviously, because I'm a sailor, I immediately sparked to it when I figured it out. In a shipment of hand-me-down miscellany from my parents, I found this punch bowl with a picture of a square-rigged ship on it. I was like, wow, this is a beautiful object. What's the story here? And most of the writing was almost worn off. And it turned out to have been given to her husband, whose name was Edward, when he was named the master of their sailing vessel. And so it was just poking around in digital files online that I figured this story out. And it only took me about an afternoon. I was gobsmacked. Yeah. And actually, Hannah's story shows up in a book that's about women in the age of sail and women seafarers. But the historian who wrote that book never figured out her first name or any of the surrounding story about her, what had happened to her. He just described a Mrs. Howe who put this mutiny down with a pistol. Wow. And um, so he'd never actually filled in some of the details. And when she got back to Beverly, she, she remarried. She, she married a dentist. She lived a very modest, you know, <laughs> modest, unassuming life for the late latter half of the 19th century until her death. I like to think her new husband was probably uh, telling the story and making sure that patients <laughs> who were reluctant to pay their bills knew that she, <laughs> he had some enforcement power uh, lurking in the background. Either that or he was utterly henpecked. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> Hard to know. Right. So when it came to figuring out what life would have been like for a young woman on a pirate ship in the earlier years that you were looking at, were there accounts or letters or any kind of materials you could look to in order to help you understand what life was like for Hannah Missouri of your story? Well, there are two very famous accounts of women who disguise themselves as men and went pirating in the 17-teens. Mm. And their names are Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. And each of them, they had sort of different backgrounds, although Anne Bonny did end up immigrating from Cork in Ireland to the Carolinas. But incredibly, they ended up disguised and on the same ship. They were in the same crew under a guy named Calico Jack Rackham. Anne Bonny was Calico Jack's lover. 
And so their stories are pretty widely known, and they're told in a, a book called A General History of the Pirates, which was written by a somewhat mysterious figure named Captain Charles Johnson. And it was first published in 1724, and it went through many different editions. It was a very, it was like a bestseller in the early part of the 18th century, because even then, even when pirates were still active in the Caribbean and the Atlantic world, they were romanticized and turned into figures of, of myth and fable, which I found kind of interesting to think about. And there have been some people who have theorized that Captain Charles Johnson is a nom de plume for Daniel Defoe, and there are some scholars who have rejected that hypothesis. But Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were real people. But in order to imagine what Hannah's life must have been like, it did require a little bit of imagination. Ships at this time period all had boys on board. Um, that was true in the Merchant Marine. It was true in the Navy. They did sort of odd jobs and, and jobs of all work. If you've seen Master and Commander, there are little boys who are on that ship, and there's a young boy who is a midshipman, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, on the only pirate ship that has actually been excavated, identified and excavated. It's called the Widda, and it was wrecked off of Cape Cod under the uh, control of a pirate named Black Sam Bellamy. The wreck was discovered in the 1980s, and in 2006, there was a rather grim discovery made in the Widda of a boy's leather shoe with a stocking and a tibia still inside. So the only like physical remnant of this mm. notorious pirate wreck was of a young boy. So there were boys on all of these ships in the maritime world. And it was also a time period when there wasn't really, you know, now if you saw me wearing a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, you wouldn't think much of it. We have a more kind of fluid, gendered way of dressing than people did in general in the 18th century. So in the 18th century, it was more common to kind of assume if you saw someone dressed in a gendered way to not question the presentation that they were giving you. And so my thought was that Hannah could get away with being taken for a boy. She was starving. She was undernourished. She might not even have started menstruating yet because she wouldn't have had enough body fat. It's not that unusual in that time period. So she would have looked different from a 17-year-old girl in Boston today. She wouldn't have had the kind of health and and body fat percentage that, you know, we would consider to be normal. So I did some thinking about how Hannah could have potentially credibly passed for a boy for such a long time. And it's written in the first person. So I would guess that you're imagining your way into her mind of, well, what would it be like to be in this disguise and to, to be... Yeah. Um, putting on the clothes and sort of transforming mm-hmm. herself into a boy so that she can escape the danger of being detected and so on. But what was it like to write in her voice? Was that easy to find for you? That's a good question. Um, I've written in first person before, although in each instance it was for YA novels. I have two YA novels. Mm. And in one of them I write a girl's perspective. And actually in one of them I write a teenage boy's perspective. Um, that's my ghost novel, The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen. And I don't know, I find it once I kind of get into the mind of a character, I don't necessarily find their, their voice all that challenging to inhabit. Maybe mm. it's because typically I write in close third person, mm-hmm. which is when you're looking o- over the shoulder of someone. So even when I'm 
in close, but I'm still occupying that person's perspective. I'm not writing in third omniscient mm-hmm. usually. And so I found it weirdly comfortable. I mean, one of the things that was most interesting to me to think about in constituting Hannah's persona or personality was, you know, she is a teenager in 1726. So she's born around 1705. So she's born at this moment that is really a transitional moment from the early modern into the modern. And so she is living in this just post Puritan moment in this just post Puritan environment. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to think about how Hannah, you know, Hannah would have had a lot of religious exposure Mm -hmm. and a lot of, but she wouldn't have been literate. And so she makes all these kinds of glancing biblical references or things like that because that's the culture she would have been exposed to. Right. But she herself would not necessarily have espoused or embodied that set of beliefs. So her morality is, you know, one of the things we learn about Hannah early on is that she's sexually active. And in fact, she has kind of a fluid sexuality. She stops with boys if she wants to. She has a kind of quasi-romantic relationship with a girl named Sarah. And so Hannah's thinking about herself, and she calls herself a sinner and articulates the things that she has done. But it's sort of a way of making herself safe in her world, making herself more powerful in a world where she has next to no power. So in thinking about Hannah's sense of self, I spent a lot of time actually thinking about what role religion played in her life mm-hmm. and how she how she would class herself morally. Because, of course, also in order to be successful in a pirate crew, she would quickly have to revise her sense of morality, um, particularly given how much violence is attendant in a life of piracy. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Catherine Howe. Okay, we're back. Catherine, we haven't yet talked about the other story in your novel. Uh, who is Professor Marion Beresford? Yes. So, and I don't know if it qualifies as a twist, but early on in the book, we're, we're following Hannah Missouri's story. We meet her in, her in Boston, and we see her shipping out. And then a bit abruptly, we realize that we're actually not inside Hannah's story. We're actually reading Hannah's story. Mm, mm-hmm. And the person who's been reading Hannah's story is a professor at Radcliffe in around 1930 named Marion Beresford. Marion is a history professor, and she is the daughter of a, of a prominent explorer. Um, because in the 19th and early part of the 20th century, it was um, very common, or not common is a strong word, it was a gentlemanly pursuit to go exploring, you know, to go to the Arctic or to go to the Yucatan or things like that. This Mm -hmm. is when you have the Explorers Club and things like that. And so, uh, so Marion's father is um, an active explorer in this kind of like, I guess it's sort of a colonialist enterprise. And so Marion, we learn quickly, is someone who is sort of ill at ease with herself She's ill at ease with her culture to some to some extent. She also has some sort of worries or concerns about 
gender and her gender presentation, her sexuality. And she feels kind of trapped under the shadow of her father and her father's expectations for her. And we discover that Hannah Missouri's story has been brought to her in the form of a primary source called A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, that has been found by an undergraduate named Kay Lonergan. And Kay ends up convincing Marion that this source might be able to lead them on a treasure hunt because you can't have a pirate novel without treasure, <laughs> obviously. So there is essentially, there is kind of a mystery and treasure hunt at the center of the story. And there are also larger questions around the nature of authorship and trustworthiness and whether something can be emotionally true while being factually untrue, which of course all fiction is. Right. Now, you could have set this framing story in the 21st century and had a scholarly character who was much like yourself. What are the benefits of setting the frame in the 1930s? Well, one of the reasons, actually, in truth, one of the reasons that that got me thinking about Marion in the 1930s is because, so I'm the co-author with Anderson Cooper for his latest book, Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. Mm -hmm. In Aster, we have a chapter about the Aster Hotel Bar, which was now is largely forgotten, but which for much of the 20th century until it closed in 1966, was kind of the most important meeting place for gay men in New York, especially gay servicemen. And it got me thinking about spaces of safety and spaces of inclusion, basically spaces where you could go and feel safe being yourself. And in the course of researching that chapter, I was reading up about spaces for queer women in New York in the same time period. And it got me thinking about that period, which is you know very different from our own, in which being gay or having a queer gender identity was heavily policed and very dangerous. And so since Hannah herself has kind of a slippery relationship with her own gender, with her own sexuality, I wanted to have a character who was thinking about her to be in a similar position. Well, and also sort of practically, as I'm telling you, Hannah Missouri's story earlier, I was able to find all that information out in one afternoon on my laptop, which is incredible. But in earlier decades, research was a more foot leather intensive enterprise. And so I wanted to have her actually go to a library to see maps instead of just pulling up Google Maps. Or, right. you know, it's just it's just a little bit more it's more <laughs> yes. of an adventure. Yes. Like, right. What we gain in convenience in our modern era, we lose in adventure, I think. I think that's true. And I think if I were writing a spy novel, I would want to put it in the Cold War where people are dropping off film with microfilm with one another. And (laughs) yeah, you can have this wrapped around a pen and hidden inside an eyeglass. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Professor Beresford seems a bit reluctant when she first uh, has this manuscript presented to her. What is her attitude toward it initially? Well, her first thought is that it has to be a fake, Mm. that it has to be something that was written and passed off as true. And in a way, that actually also has a a bit of a historical antecedent. So when I was working on the Penguin Book of Pirates, I went to the Maritime Collection at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Mm -hmm. And there they have a piece of scrimshaw, which is whale tooth with intricate engraving on it that is then blackened with tar. Mm. 
And it's actually a really beautiful kind of folk art making process. And if you ever see scrimshaw, it's really some, some things, some incredible things are made. And this Fanny Campbell is an early 19th century scrimshaw representation. And the tag next to it said Fanny Campbell, the female pirate captain. Mm. And I was like, oh, wow, here's a female pirate captain I've never heard of. I have to go. She's got to be in the book. I have to go research her. Well, it turns out Fanny Campbell was fictional. Fanny Campbell was the subject of a best-selling, somewhat overwritten romantic book that was released in the early part of the 19th century, but it was so widely read. It was such a runaway bestseller and people responded to it so much that sometimes people didn't know that she was fictional. Mm. And certainly in the catalog entry for this piece of scrimshaw that I saw, there was no indication that she was a fictional female pirate. Right, person. right. And so it's it kind of plays into the like instant fabulization or fictionalization of pirates and piracy. You know, there's such a long tangled relationship between what is true and what has been subject to romanticization. And so I wanted to explore that question in a true account. And that's one of the reasons that the title is a true account, because of course the question of its truth is immediately, immediately at issue. And then what draws Professor Beresford? You touched on this a little bit already, but why does the story of Hannah Missouri eventually appeal to her? Well, I think Hannah Missouri ends up appealing to Marion because of the same reason that stories of piracy appeal to all of us, that Mm -hmm. it represents Mm -hmm. this freedom from cultural constraints on land, this freedom from very rigid gender or class roles or expectations. Hannah represents this kind of dream of self-determination, of radical freedom. Mm. And Marion is a character who herself first really discovers that she can have this dream of radical freedom. She ends up kind of taking Hannah into herself. The longer she spends thinking about Hannah, the more kind of into herself Marion is able to grow. Okay, well, witches and pirates, do you have any other literary archetypes that you're personally connected to? (laughs) (laughs) Those are the two big ones right now. I'm still kind of chewing through what I think my next project might be. But those are my two favorite archetypes right now, witches on one hand and pirates on the other. All right. Well, if you find any uh, great aunt who was a zombie or anything like that, you let us know. (laughs) Okay, well, the book we've been talking about is A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, and the author is our guest, Catherine Howe. Thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Catherine Howe for joining me. Please do check out her novel. It's a cracking good read. Speaking of cracking good, how about some upcoming episodes of the History of Literature? We will talk with the author of a book on the history of chapters. <laughs> That's coming up. It's an unusual sort of book. How, do you, how does one begin to write such a book? And how does one choose to chapter it? We will ask both those questions. We're getting close to the Christmas holiday, and I think we have a bit of a surprise for you. A story that has been discovered by a famous and beloved author who wrote a Christmas story under a pseudonym, perhaps. 
We'll also hear from an expert on Henry David Thoreau soon. His book is about Thoreau at work, Thoreau's hard work and his relationship to work in general. The Venerable Bede is waiting for us in the new year, as are many others. So please do follow the podcast and tell all your friends, and I mean all, every single one with zero exceptions. All right, with one exception. Tell all your friends except the ones you don't want to tell. We run a democratic ship devoted to liberty. That's our approach to these here waters. We're outlaws, but the gentle kind. The kind, kind. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.